0: We're in the middle of a series on the life of David, volume one, which describes David's rise to kingship. Even people who wouldn't consider themselves religious are often familiar with David the shepherd boy killing Goliath, the Philistines greatest warrior with just a slingshot and a stone. David the poet, singer, songwriter who wrote most of the Psalms. David the valiant warrior with numerous military victories to his name. The story we're looking at today depicts a very different David, David the fugitive. This is not a David running towards a giant, but a David running for his life, running from an increasingly troubled and destructive king. In today's story, David's just trying to stay alive, just trying to figure out what to do next. He doesn't have an elaborate plan, Instead, he's running from place to place, trying to follow God and do the right thing. At times, he's full of faith. At other times, he's full of fear. But at all times, he's living this life with God. And while this isn't the most familiar in the David story, I think it's just as important. For while we're not facing death warrants like David, we are facing other challenges where we don't fully know what to do, where we're trying to follow God, but we don't know the way. Could be a financial challenge you're facing or a health crisis for you or a loved one. Maybe it's a relational challenge where you wonder if reconciliation is even possible. Or maybe you're trying to make a difficult decision and you don't know what to do. Whatever it is for you this morning, I think you'll find some encouragement from watching what David does when he doesn't know what to do. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify with the Christian faith at this point, I think you'll also find this story interesting because it's quite possible that the barriers you have do not accurately represent real Christian faith and deserve re-examination. The passage we're looking at today is long. It's 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So I'm gonna summarize most of it quoting only key parts of the story and making some comments along the way. Feel free to follow along in your Bible. If you want to use the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's pages 411 to 413. Just before we pick up the story, let's recap. When we last left our hero, he was saying goodbye to both his wife, and his best friend, Jonathan, King Saul's son, because it had finally become clear that Saul was bent on having David killed. Saul's emotional outbursts have congealed into a hardened, fixed jealousy and hatred of David. Now it's national policy that David be sought out and killed. And so, running for his life, David flees. He leaves Saul's royal court in Gibeah and runs a couple of miles to Nob, where the priests of God lived. Ahimelech, the head priest, asks why David's alone. David plays a little fast and loose with the facts here, convincing the priest he's working for Saul on a secret mission rather than running from him. David answered Ahimelech the priest, the the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. Uh, As for my men, I told them to meet me around at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Let's pause here for just a moment. David just flat out lied to a priest nonetheless. What's up with that? I'm not gonna address the ethical question of when, if ever, it's right to lie because the text doesn't comment explicitly on this, although there is a devastating consequence to this at the end of the story. For now, I simply wanna point out that most likely, David is trying to keep Ahimelech unaware of what he's doing so that if the priest is ever questioned about it, He can say, honestly, he was not an accomplice. Unfortunately, Saul is more irrational and violent than David realizes, but at least David is trying to protect the priest. David, having left town quickly, has escaped without food or weapon. He gets both at Nob from the priest, for it just so happens the priest does indeed have some bread. It's the bread of the presence The loaves put in the tabernacle every week on the Sabbath, which reminded them of God's faithfulness to them throughout their history. The priest and his family were permitted to eat it after a week when new loaves replaced the old ones. Ahimelech, realizing David is ritually clean and human need necessitates it, gives David the bread. A thousand years later, Jesus himself refers approvingly to the priest's giving of the bread in Matthew 12, 3 and 4. So the priest gives David bread, and he also gives him a sword, but not just any sword. Verse 8, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth. If you want it, take it. In their day, it was common for victors of a battle to mount the weapons of their enemy in a tent. David is given the sword to the tabernacle, since God was the real victor. And David now takes that weapon. Things are looking up except that a note of villainy is added to the narrative, foreshadowing the atrocity concluding the story. Verse seven, now one of Saul's servants was there that day. He was Doag, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Chief shepherd here means spy. He went throughout the kingdom and reported any strange happenings to Saul. And he's an Edomite. Edomites were a different nationality and they were known for their hostility and their violence against Israel. If you think in the New Testament, King Herod, who kills all the babies under two in order to kill Jesus, he's from Edom. We'll come back to this later, but for now, know that trouble is brewing. David now runs from Nob to Gath. Gath, about 20 miles away, is the closest Philistine city to Nob. It's also the hometown of Goliath, whose whose sword he's wielding. This is a little crazy, David has been public enemy number one in this town for the last few years since he killed their top fighter. We aren't told whether David thinks he won't be recognized or whether he plans to offer himself as a mercenary in Philistine service fighting against Saul. Maybe they'd want a renowned warrior like himself fighting against their greatest enemy, Saul. After all, sometimes the enemy of my enemy can become a friend. The plan doesn't work. Interestingly, it's David's might, military might, that gets him in trouble. The Philistines seem a little unsure about having such a mighty warrior in their midst. And then, for the first time in this whole narrative, we're told David is afraid. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So what does he do? He does what any respectable person would do. Verse 13, so he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of their gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane, why bring him to me? Am I so short a madman that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on in front of me? That's got to be one of the best lines in the Bible. I have enough crazy, why do I need him? 1 Samuel 22, 1. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave at Adullam. All right, so siding with Saul's enemy didn't work. What now? He retreats 10 miles to the kill country of Adullam, a no-man's land between Philistine and Israelite territory. He needs a place to hide out while he figures out a better plan. During that time, we're told, his family comes to him presumably because they're concerned about their own safety. From Adullam. David escorts his family to Moab, 1 Samuel 22:3. David went to Moab and said to the king, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? He leaves his family in Moab in safety and returns to Adullam to hide out. Now, the last scene of this narrative is quite brutal. Remember Doag the Edomite? Somehow Saul finds out that David has been hiding and he gets really angry. He accuses all his men of conspiring against him. He accuses his son, Jonathan, of trying to convince David to kill him, none of which is true. But Doag, the Edomite, seizes this moment and finally leaks the information he's been holding on to so calculatingly. I saw David with Ahimelech. Ahimelech gave him food and the sword of Goliath. Here, the narrative takes a devastating turn Saul summons Ahimelech along with his whole family, 85 priests and all, and accuses him of aiding and abetting his enemy, David. Ahimelech answers, I was just doing my job. I have no idea what you're talking about. And because of David's deceit, Ahimelech is telling the truth. But Saul's anger is out of control. He orders the guards to kill the priests of the Lord, and Saul's men refuse to do it. They may fear Saul's wrath, but they fear God's wrath even more. It's wrong to kill innocent people and it's wrong to kill the priests of God. One writer said of this scene, never was the command of a ruler more cruelly given, never was the command of a ruler more honorably disobeyed. But guess who has no qualms about carrying out this violent and senseless act? You got it, Doag the Edomite. He's not an Israelite. He has no regard for the priests or their God. This passage tells us he kills 85 priests, and he doesn't stop there. 1 Samuel 22:19. 19, he also put to the sword knob the town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Only one priest escaped that day, Ahitab, Ahimelech's son, and he runs to find David and tells him what happened. Verse 22, then David said, that day when Doag the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who, kills, who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Now, I know that's an awful story. Believe me, I was not too thrilled with John for being out of town this week. (laughs) But it's here, and we've got to deal with it. We're going to look at that briefly in a few moments. But before we do, I don't want us to lose the tenor and tone of this whole narrative, because I think it's really helpful for us. So I want to first stop and ask, what does this story tell us about a life with God or about following God? We learn five insights about a life with God. We're going to look at each one in turn. First, a life with God is messy, but we stay the course. One of the great gifts of this passage for us is that it isn't the picture of a person following God, knowing exactly what to do, doing it perfectly. No, David is like a rat in a maze here. He runs in one direction thinking it makes sense. He hits a wall, then he regroups and goes a different way. He comes to another impasse and he makes the best decision he can. He doesn't know if what he's doing is right, he's just doing his best. He's just trying to survive and he's afraid at times. He takes each step with as much integrity as he can, even in the intent of trying to keep Ahimelech innocent, but it isn't pretty and he isn't always making the best decisions. This was not the message I expected to see at the outset of my studying. But it is one I found comforting, because I can relate to that. Yes, there are times when, like David, I run towards the giant, confident in God. But I'll be honest and say, there are plenty of other times in my life with God when I feel like I'm running around from town to town just trying to figure it out. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. It's complicated. It's not always clear. In our parenting, in our workplaces, when dealing with ethical situations, in our neighborhoods, when dealing with different personalities, in the school or on the sports team where every parent is a papa or mama bear, when we're trying to make a decision about two jobs or caring for aging parents or whether or not to get married, it's hard to know if we're doing the right thing. We don't always see the plan clearly ahead of us sometimes we only know the next step. But we do that as faithfully as we can. We stay the course. David the fugitive shows us that a life with God is messy, but we stay the course. Second, a life with God involves being savvy. Did you notice that David, known throughout the Psalms for his trust in God, is clearly not just trusting God in this passage, or if he is, he's got a very active view of what it means to trust. David is praying. We'll get to that in a minute, but he's also using his wits. He uses whatever resources are at his disposal. At Gath, when he acts insane, that's not just comical. That's brilliant. In his day, insanity was viewed as possible possession by a god so in order to avoid inflicting punishment on yourself, you wouldn't want to harm the person. You just want to get rid of them. David knows this. Feigning insaren- insanity may land him back on the street again, but at least he'll be alive. And thanks to his Oscar-winning performance, it works. When his family comes to him, he escorts them to safekeeping, and he goes to Moab. Moab is a strategic choice for two reasons. It's really out of the way. Did you see it on the map? But he goes there for two reasons. One, he's got family there. Remember David's great-grandmother is Ruth, the Moabite? See Ruth 4, verse 13 and 22. And two, Moab is one of Saul's enemies, 1 Samuel 14, 47. And they will gladly help Saul's number one enemy, David. This reminds me of the courageous people in the civil rights movement who prayed for protection, but also took precautions. Medgar Evers, who worked to overturn segregation in Mississippi, this is a picture of his home, and who tragically was eventually assassinated by a white supremacist, built his house with no front door. His windows were up higher than normal, and his kids slept on mattresses on the floor to avoid any gunshots should they be attacked. Maybe you've known people like this, but I've known people who are so trusting in God that they don't take any responsibility themselves. I once asked a woman who desperately needed a new job, did you apply for that job? You'd be perfect, you've got a great connection. And she replied, no, I know God's got this. And I was like, generally speaking, that's not how it works. God doesn't magically drop things in our lap without any human agency on our part. Trust does not mean passivity. Whatever it is we need to trust God with this morning, let's be sure we're doing our part to work with God in the process. Now, it is possible to be so focused on our part that we don't engage God. And that's why the third insight is so important. A life with God involves being prayerful. The action in the narrative hints at this a couple of times. Did you hear that amazing statement of trust David makes in 1 Samuel 22:3 when he asked the king of Moab, Would you let my parents stay here until I learn what God will do for me? David isn't being selfish here. He's waiting on God to guide him. He wants to trust God, but he needs to sit and wait and know his next move. What the narrative hints at, David's prayer journal records. Several psalms were composed during this time on the run. Here's just a few. Sometimes David cried out for help, as in Psalm 56 when the Philistines seized him. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit all day long. They press their attack. Sometimes David reminds himself of truth. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I trust and I'm not afraid. What can man do to me? Sometimes David says, thank you. Psalm 34, written after he pretended to be insane at Gath and was released, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all who put their refuge in him. Yes, sometimes we need to get busy and act. But sometimes we're so busy flailing around, we may need to pause and ask God for help or direction. Maybe we'll find that waiting on him avoids other trouble we get ourselves into when we don't stop and ask for guidance first. Maybe you will wanna pray David's prayers this week. A life with God is prayerful. Fourth, and this is so encouraging in the midst of our waiting, provision will come when it is needed. I moved quickly over this part in the narrative when I was telling the story. But did you catch just what kind of bread and sword David got at Nob? He gets the bread of the presence, one of his people's quintessential symbols of God's faithfulness to them throughout their thousands of years. It's just after David gets this bread that he pens the words I just read, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just like his ancestors wandering in the wilderness God gave him the manna he needed that day, strengthening him for the next part of the journey. And he gets not just a sword, but Goliath's sword, whom he defeated by trusting in God. Feel the weight of that sword in your hand for a moment. This is God not just tangibly meeting David's need for a weapon. This is God graciously meeting David's need for spiritual encouragement and a morale boost. Psst, David, remember this battle? When I came through for you, despite all evidence to the contrary, all circumstances piled against you, I have not changed. I am with you now. This is our God he often encourages us not only with general reminders of his faithfulness, but also with specific reminders of how he is at work in our lives personally. Maybe this week as you're living the with God life in the messiness of your workplace or home or family or wherever, you can look for evidence of God's provision for you personally. Fifth and finally in our life with God there will be tragedies, but God will deal out justice eventually. The way this story concludes with the slaughter of innocent people is heinous. That's why a lot of people don't like the Bible. Doag is the consummate villain in this story, and Saul is unreasonable, rash, and violent. Let me make two comments about this story. First, The story is told partly to show a marked contrast between Saul and David's character. Saul has lost all regard for God. David, while imperfect, still honors God. Saul is killing priests. David is protecting the one who escapes. Saul is acting irresponsibly by ordering the massacre. David accepts responsibility when he's told about it. Saul has no regard for God as evidenced by killing of the priest, and David is seeking and trusting in God. Second, David composes a song prayer after this atrocity, and it might surprise you what he says. You can read the entire prayer in Psalm 52, but here's an excerpt. He's talking to Doeg. Why do you boast of evil, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who plots destruction? You love evil rather than good, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. 1 Samuel 22 is Holy Scripture, so is Psalm 52. This story isn't in the Bible because God condones the behavior of people like Saul and Doeg, prescribing this is the way it's supposed to be. No. It's in the Bible because it's describing the way it is now until God restores this world for good. It's accurately depicting the world we live in with all its brokenness. This world, as much as God loves it, is not the world we're going to inhabit when Jesus returns again. The Bible speaks of a day in Revelation 22.3 when no longer will there be any curse. Evil doesn't win in the end. The Sauls and the Doegs and the murderer of Medgar Evans will be held account for their actions. Despite how it may seem at times, evil does not go unnoticed. There is a God who will judge justly and only he knows how to weigh all things. In a strange way, this is actually somewhat comforting. Christians don't have to sugarcoat the fact that this world is messed up. The Bible gives it to us straight here. Our schools and our workplaces have some sauls and doegs. Our world has some sauls and doegs. Throughout history, we've had some sauls and doegs. The Jewish people are the last people you have to try to convince that evil is real and exists. Yes? And sometimes, even when we're doing the right thing and being savvy, we, like David, may still experience some fallout. I imagine this is how Martin Luther King Jr. felt that day in June of 1963, leading the funeral procession of his friend, Medgar Evans. He knew that a white supremacist was to blame, but he still felt horrible. Like David, I am responsible. And he grieved the loss of his friend. And when we are in the face of real evil, we respond like David. We grieve where evil has prevailed. We care for the vulnerable. We own our part, even if we're not ultimately responsible. We entrust ourselves to the one who is our vindicator. We entrust all judgment to him, for he alone is capable of dealing out the appropriate amount of mercy and justice each person deserves. And we look forward to the day when God will set the record straight, when all evil will be eradicated once and for all. But in the meantime... We stay the course as messy and unclear as that may be, as inadequate as we may feel. We take it one step of a, time, one step at a time, and when we hit a wall, we regroup. We use our wits and we pray. We feel afraid at times, and we taste and feel the weight of his provision at other times. But we keep running, not just because of King David's example, but because we have come to know the one true king, King Jesus, who offered his life, his body on our behalf, serving as the ultimate sacrifice for our brokenness and sin so that those who put their hope and trust in him would have life here and now and life to come. He entered this mess and he offers us himself the bread of life, And he fills us with his spirit to lead and guide and strengthen at every turn until we reach home. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so grateful for this crazy little story. David running around, sometimes getting it right, sometimes not, using his wits, afraid, seeing your provision here and there, trusting in you, we can relate to that. Some of us in this room are in that place. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. Would you meet us in our cave of Adullam? Would you speak clearly the next step? By your spirit, would you strengthen us, give us manna that we need today to be faithful and do what you've called us to do, even when it's hard, even when there are consequences? For the sake of your name, Jesus, we pray.